everyone, and welcome to episode three of our newest podcast, Raya Affairs. We are your co-hosts this episode, as always, Marina and Serene. We are both international relations students, with Serene graduating this week, so big congratulations to her, and we're both interning at Raya. Serene, why don't you do the honors and explain what Raya is all about to our listeners? Hi, everyone. Sure, Marina. So Raya is an international think tank led by young professionals that translates the abstract world of international affairs by simplifying rather than generalizing. Raya is a place where you come to learn about the stories and worries of political leaders, the behind the scenes of decision makers, and how politics impacts and changes your life. This is Raya Affairs, filling you in wherever you are. And we just want to give a quick disclaimer to state that the expressed opinions in this episode are welcome, even though they're not a direct reflection of Raya. Raya specializes in unbiased writing and analysis. Last week, we discussed Serbian President Vucic with Raya writer Michael Duffy and his camaraderie with Putin. We attempted to understand why Vucic needs to balance domestic and international political and economic interests, and within this, how the EU and China play a role in Vucic's actions. So if you are interested, or if you just want to find out more about this topic, go ahead and take a look at our second episode. And what's more is much of last week's discussions are related to what we will be discussing today, more specifically in relation to the behaviors of the leader we will be looking at today, such as reactive changes in strategy due to outside players and the economy, including the supply of certain commodities. So to kick off this episode, we will be discussing prominent leader Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, his coalition, the Yemen ceasefire, as well as the role of the Houthi resilience in the conflict. Raya writer Linda Steiner will join us to understand how this affects Saudi interests regarding their future with allies, both regionally and internationally. Marina, on to you. All right, so hi Linda and welcome to Raya Affairs. We're very grateful that you're here. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? So where are you from? What do you do? And why did you choose to join Raya? Thank you very much, Marina and Serene, for having me on your podcast today. It is a pleasure to be here and I look forward to being a part of it. My name is Linda Lorraine Steiner. I come from Switzerland and currently I am a third year international relations student at IE University in Madrid. I chose to join Raya because it gives me the opportunity to take a step further in the field of international affairs, and to me it is the perfect place to come together with young professionals from all over the world who have a similar passion to mine. Thank you for that, and we're also going to ask all our writers this question so that our listeners can get a sense of who you are a bit outside of Raya. As someone who is passionate about IR, as you just mentioned, what leader, dead or alive, who has impacted the world would you like to have a five-minute conversation with? If I could have a five-minute conversation with an influential leader, I would choose Kofi Annan, the former Secretary General of the United Nations. He inspires me as he once was a constant advocate for human rights and played a central role in the creation of the global funds to fight AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria. He was also an important actor in the adoption of the UN's first ever counterterrorism strategy and further developed the responsibility to protect people from genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity. From Nigeria to Cameroon, Israel to Lebanon, Iraq to Indonesia, Kofi Annan's work often enforced resolutions to many conflicts and wars around the world. 
Perfect. Well, thank you so much for that thought out answer, Linda. And with that, let's get right into it. So to start with, we want to go a bit deeper into the specific actors of the war in Yemen. Uh, therefore, can you give us a quick overview of Mohammed bin Salman's leadership in Saudi Arabia and what some of his current interests are in Yemen? And just for future reference, we'll be using MBS to address the Saudi leader to make things easier. Of course. So MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, currently serves as the deputy prime minister and the minister of defense. In 2015, when Saudi Arabia, together with its allies, launched the intervention in Yemen, their primary aim was to defeat the rise of the Iranian-backed Houthi rebel group in order to prevent Yemen from becoming a satellite state of Iran, which means that a formerly independent country is under heavy political, economic and military control of another country. And whilst the kingdom's involvement in the war is definitely not black and white, the primary aims behind their intervention can very strongly be linked to the fight uh, for regional dominance and national security. However, now, seven years later, the war has still not come to an end, and Saudi Arabia has decided to change their strategy, at least for now, by agreeing to the ceasefire. Okay, so we also wanted you to give our listeners perhaps some background on one of the other essential actors of the war in Yemen, the Houthi rebel group. What is their involvement in the Yemen crisis, and what are their interests? So the Houthi rebel group, which is backed by Iran, is a political and armed movement that has been locked in an ongoing conflict with the Yemeni government for years. They fought for a regime change and continued their battle against the Saudi-led coalition later on. At first, the Houthis were presented as a resistant force who rose against the first president of Yemen, Saleh, and his authoritarian regime. Um, the Houthi movement expressed aims to combating economic underdevelopment and political marginalization in Yemen. And then in 2004, the former president Saleh aimed to suppress the Houthi insurgents by initiating a military campaign, which sparked an escalation in the conflict. And shortly after the Arab Spring in 2011, many Yemeni uh, activists began calling for a regime change, which led to the resignation of Saleh and put Hadi into power um, for the next two years. Perfect. And just as a quick follow-up, you mentioned that the Houthi group is backed by Iran. How exactly are Iranian interests linked back to this rebel group and their participation in Yemen? So the war in Yemen is really a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and it all comes down to the struggle for regional hegemony and the aim to increase the sphere of influence. When Saudi Arabia gained the support of the member states, including Egypt, the UAE, Qatar, Morocco, and some other states, it was quite the victory for the kingdom. And as their rival, Iran, of course, wanted to undermine the Saudi coalition, and supporting the Houthis served as a very good strategy for them to do so. With the aim to contain Saudi Arabia's geopolitical influence, the Houthis were a low-cost and high-impact way to retaliate against Saudi Arabia. And here again, the goal of increasing a sphere of influence comes into play also for Iran, especially considering the fact that Saudi Arabia is their long-term rival. And there have been tensions between the two since the 1979 Iranian Revolution. This rivalry between the two states today can be linked to a political and economic struggle, which was exacerbated by religious differences throughout history. Perfect. Well, now that we've established some of the important actors, let's get right into it. 
We know that, as stated in your article, Linda, one of the reasons why MBS has entertained the possibility of a ceasefire is because of the influence of Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan, President of the United Arab Emirates. For future reference, he will be referred to as MBZ. So, where does MBZ and MBS's mentorship come into play here? How do they differ, or where is the overlap, if, if there is any? Let's discuss details. So, MBZ is often portrayed as MBS's mentor, especially since they see eye-to-eye in many areas, including some aspects of the Yemen war, and they have a strong relationship regarding politics and governance. And ultimately, many experts have argued that MBZ is in the driver's seat when it comes to the major confrontations in the Arabian Peninsula. They have a similar perspective on political Islam, particularly in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, which was a time when many monarchies of the Gulf felt threatened in regards to their power. So after the Arab Spring, the UAE and Saudi Arabia grew closer together and began to cooperate, especially in regards to the blockade on Qatar and the conflict in Libya. Also, both of the countries have put themselves into a position to become closer allies to the US. And in regards to the Yemen war, the UAE and Saudi Arabia aimed to limit the role of Iran, and their approach was somewhat aligned. However, Iran seems to be much more um, of an issue for MBS than it is for MBZ. So despite both of their involvement in Yemen, the war is mainly described as Saudi-led on the global stage. Then in 2020, after five years of their involvement in the war, and after being criticized by the international community, MBZ finally withdrew their military forces. Um, However, the country continued to be indirectly involved and its influence remained quite strong. And now, two years after the UAE's removal, MBS is starting to see eye-to-eye with MBZ and Yemen really um, does come with no exit strategy. And I think you mentioned this in your answer to the question, but I just want to go back and ask, how has the international community responded to Saudi Arabia's involvement in the Yemen crisis since 2015? And again, can we draw any parallels with MBZ's strategy in Yemen? So the involvement of Saudi Arabia in Yemen has definitely been criticized by the international community and has impacted the reputation of the prince and the House of Saud. As Saudi Arabia is seen as the aggressor of the conflict, the world focus has over the past years shifted towards MBS, which has put increasing pressure on his public image. There are now definitely some parallels that we can draw to MBZ's strategy in Yemen, especially in regards to the strong resilience of Iran, which has left both of the countries with very few options in the war. And like the UAE did two years ago, MBS is now taking a step back from the war, following in the footsteps of his mentor. And on that note, I think now would be a good time to dig a bit deeper into US-Saudi relations, um, as in relations that go just beyond oil. For example, in terms of intelligence and the importance of Saudi countering Iran as a regional power and moreover establishing themselves as regional hegemon to change the bipolar balance of power. So, Linda, could you go a bit more into this topic of U.S.-Saudi relations? Of course. So when the U.S. withdrew their intelligence support, it seemed to rapidly go downhill for Saudi Arabia. Airstrikes became less precise, which ultimately led to increased civilian casualties. 
When the humanitarian crisis in Yemen continued to grow, the public opinion of MBS and the House of Saud became increasingly damaged. And as I mentioned before, both MBS and MBZ put themselves into position to grow closer to the US and limiting Iran's influence would have probably helped them to achieve this goal. Linda, now that we're on the topic of the US, I think a lot of our listeners, as I am, are interested in Biden's approach when it comes to relations with Saudi Arabia and its leader, MBS. So how would you describe MBS's relationship with Biden? And are there any current changes to that relationship? Throughout the past years, the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia has taken many turns and has shifted between hesitant to close and back. Biden's replacement of Trump has stirred up these relations, and since his presidency, Biden has refused to visit the kingdom for a while. The president also demanded that MBS would not be a part of his call to the Saudi king, and has criticized MBS in the past. Whilst Biden is still not going to be meeting MBS by himself during his upcoming trip to the kingdom, he has definitely realized that accepting MBS to the table carries importance, especially considering the failing health of the king. So I would describe the relationship between the two as very distant. However, now with gas prices spiking around the world and with Iran becoming an increasing issue for the U.S., it is definitely no coincidence that President Biden is now taking his trip to visit Saudi Arabia and accepting the prince to the table. With the aim to bolster his relations with the kingdom, Biden is heading to the region to possibly also enforce a security arrangement, which could hopefully turn the ceasefire into a lasting peace settlement sooner or later. Okay, so that has definitely made the picture a lot clearer. So thank you for that elaborate answer regarding their relationship. I think we should also now explore a bit how MBS is, as you quoted in your article, stepping back from the Yemen war. In other words, what factors or pressure is Saudi Arabia facing to follow through and support um, a ceasefire in Yemen? So Yemen has become one of the world's worst humanitarian crises, and being associated with this has taken a heavy toll on the public image of MBS. As not only a political leader, but also as an aspiring king, MBS definitely experiences an increase of pressure coming from the international community, which has impacted his decisions. Also, an improvement of publicity is especially important to MBS now in regards to his need for international invest investors for the Vision 2030. And another factor which put him into this position is the abandonment of, its al of his allies throughout the past years, which has put Saudi Arabia in a place in which it is pressured more both economically and politically. So when the US and the UAE backed out of the war in Yemen, the situation became increasingly complex for the kingdom and the world began to focus primarily on Saudi Arabia. And now, with the chance to tighten relations with the U.S. during Biden's upcoming visit, MBS may feel increased pressure to further extend the Yemen truce. And Linda, it would be interesting to know, uh, in your research and your analysis, did you find that the outcome of Saudi Arabian intervention in Yemen was expected by MBS? So the outcome of the war is definitely not what MBS had expected nor intended. Uh, the primary aim of their involvement was to defeat the rise of the Houthis in Yemen and to prevent an increase in Iran's sphere of influence across the Middle East. And trying to achieve this had cost Saudi Arabia a lot financially, but it also really impacted their global reputation, which is especially important considering the fact that he is a royal and an aspiring king. 
So I believe if the prince would have expected this outcome, his strategic plans back in 2015 probably would have been quite different. Okay, so before we go into our top three takeaways, I think that it's very crucial to discuss the potential consequences, both positive and negative, of a lasting ceasefire in Yemen from Saudi Arabia's behalf. I think it should be a practical possibility and not just something that Saudi Arabia is putting on paper to relieve some of the pressure it's facing or fix its international, MBS's international reputation, as you mentioned, Linda. So could you discuss some of these consequences? Yes, so if Saudi Arabia were to accept the further extension of a ceasefire, the Houthis would have to do so too, and they are right now probably the primary obstacle to a peace agreement. And whilst the extension of a ceasefire would decrease the violence within Yemen and would be a milestone for the country, especially considering human rights, Yemen would however continue to suffer. And the further extension of a ceasefire would not fix the failed state and local actors would probably continue to fight after the agreement, and the country would continue to be strongly divided. Yemen also has no accepted political leader who could pick up the pieces to fix the state, and the Houthis will continue to have influence within its borders. So for Saudi Arabia, the ceasefire could come with some advantages and some disadvantages. First of all, the Court of the World Opinion has developed in a way to see Saudi Arabia as the main aggressor of the conflict, not Iran, not the UAE, or any other member states. And as I mentioned earlier, this has heavily impacted the public opinion on MBS. If you were to agree to a further extension of the ceasefire to turn it into a lasting peace agreement, he would probably benefit in the sense that he could somewhat improve his global reputation. However, on the other hand, it would be seen as a sign of giving in, which may imply that his intervention has failed and that Iran could almost claim a sense of victory over their long-term rival in the Middle East. Thank you, Linda, for that analysis. I just wanted to add a last comment before giving the floor to Serene. You mentioned that even though a ceasefire could decrease violence within Yemen, the country will continue to suffer. And I think that's a very important point. There are many local actors and domestic divisions in Yemen, as well as growing Houthi influence, in which there is a huge human cost. And while we may hail a ceasefire as a victory um, regarding that it it's less of that human cost, it's motivated by the many interests we explore today. And I think those motivations are something that we should always think about. Yes, for sure. I agree with you, Marina. Yemen experiences many deeply rooted issues, including several disease outbreaks, a lack of medical health care, very high malnutrition rates, and there is no functioning government set in place to fix these issues. So even if the violence were to decrease, Yemen is considered a failed state, and as such, it would take years to see improvements. So what would be extremely important would be to solve the root causes of these issues. And we, as the international community, have the responsibility to do what we can to aid this process. Thank you so much for elaborating on this interesting and important topic, Linda. And with that being said, it seems that we've come to the end of our discussion. But before moving on to our much-awaited Q&A section, we wanted to know... What do you believe are the three top takeaways our listeners should have, more specifically in your process of research and analysis? We believe that this is an important topic to elaborate on, especially given what we're discussing um, and given that there are so many actors involved and there's so much disinformation. And Linda, when answering, please feel free to add your personal thoughts. 
So my top three takeaways in regards to research and analysis are firstly, understanding connections and the history of the topic is very important. The topics uncovered in the news today are mostly rooted deeply in history or geopolitics, so learning about the background information is very helpful. What I also find important is learning about a leader's personal life in order to maybe form better connections. And lastly, my main takeaway from working in the research and analysis sector is to analyze something that really interests you. Some prefer learning about foreign policy of the Middle East, whilst others prefer to focus on Europe, for instance. And I think the most important factor is to be motivated and curious about the topic. So stick with what you find most interesting. All right, Linda, so now it's time for our quick Q&A, which is a segment that we do in which we discuss questions that are sent by viewers on our Raya social media in anticipation of the podcast. And they're always questions directed to, well, you, our writers. So the first question comes from Martin from London, and he asks, what is the most important element of the Yemen war that people should acknowledge? To me, what I believe is most important is to acknowledge the humanitarian crisis, which has been taking place in Yemen for years, and that the war is often forgotten about by the international community. Yemen is a failed state, which imported about 90% of its food, medicine, and fuel prior to the war. And when the coalition enforced a, the blockade on Yemen, the humanitarian crisis was exacerbated to a great extent, and even more civilians were pushed into famine. With no stable government and without diplomatic efforts, Yemen will continue to be in the state that it is in today. Perfect. So next up, we have Maria from Alicante. And Maria asks, what is Saudi leader MBS's priority as of now? So as I talked a little bit about earlier, the costs of the war have already outweighed the gains for MBS. One can assume his main priority at the moment is looking for an exit ramp in Yemen in order to improve his public image also in, reg in regards to gaining investors for his Vision 2030. I think it has become quite clear for the member states of the coalition that the costs for them are quite high and their main priority right now is placing an end to this without uh, handing over too much influence or control to Iran. All right, so there you have it. Those were excellent answers from Linda directed to our audience. And to wrap up this episode, I think it's more than safe to say that the discussion today has been thorough and insightful and truly an analysis into Saudi Arabia's leader, Mohammed bin Salman, regarding his stance towards his country's involvement in Yemen. So together, we looked at various elements that make up, I guess, why MBS is changing his original attitude towards Yemen and, as quoted by Linda, stepping back. So we have his own initial political interests of regional dominance and national security to the rise and now current resilience of the Houthi rebel group, which is supported by regional actor Iran. To add more to this why behind MBS's actions, we also discussed his relationship with the leader of the United Arab Emirates, with Linda commenting on the similarities and differences regarding their policies in Yemen and the type of mentorship that we see arise and develop with these powerful leaders. And we also touched upon the changing nature of relations between USA's President Biden and MBS and really how Biden's acceptance of a trip to Saudi Arabia is influencing this ceasefire. 
So Serena and I both wanted to thank Linda for her participation today. I know I and whoever else is listening have definitely learned and reflected much about just another portion of the conflict in Yemen, which is already very complicated and very complex. And the driving forces behind this Saudi ceasefire, which was the focus of our episode today. So thank you very much, Linda, for joining us and for being on Raya Affairs. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It has been a pleasure to talk to you about such an important topic. Thank you so much, Linda. It's been a pleasure. And for those of you who are listening and who enjoyed our discussion and want to read more for yourselves, make sure to check out Linda's article under the link in the podcast description or at rayagroup.org. And make sure to also follow us on Instagram, raya.now. Lastly, it was a pleasure hosting this talk today. We're your co-hosts, Serena and Marina. Goodbye from us and thanks for tuning in. Have a great day in your sphere of influence. Thank you.